Thanks, Steve. That's great. <clears throat> what a great word. Let the blood of Jesus flow freely this morning. Have you ever started your day off with good intentions of getting something done and uh, you don't even get it started? <laughs> Has that ever happened to you? Uh, uh, Maybe uh, something that's really important and you get everything else done except for that one thing you commit to getting done. Um, maybe you start off the new year and you decide this is the year, I'm going to get in shape, I'm going to eat healthy, I'm going to run like I'm supposed to, and then before you even get started, you've already given up. Has anybody ever done that before? Well, if so, you're in good company, because me too, <laughs> me too. Uh, they say confession is good for the soul, so I think I'll start off that way by exposing my dramatic failure when it comes to something like this. A few years ago, some of the men in this church invited me to their very early morning workout. Uh, they call it F3. It meets at like 5 in the morning. And um, most of the time I'm asleep then. Sometimes I might be awake, but I'm definitely not wanting to run or to do any kind of workout at 5 in the morning like some of you crazy people. So, uh, so they invited me for over a year. And I said, no, thank you for more than a year. And then somewhere along the way I kind of made this commitment. I said, you know what, if I wake up in the morning, I'll go. Well, sure enough, I woke up about 4.30 and I said, okay, I'm going to go. So I got ready, and I drove to uh, River Bluff High School, and about 5 o'clock, I'm looking uh, for these friends that I know will be there, men from this church, and some other people. Nobody's there at like 5, and I'm thinking, what is going on? And I said, well, maybe they said 5.30, and I just forgot. Oh, well, I woke up a little early. And about five, you know, 20 minutes later, people start to gather, and I think, okay, this is it. So I kind of park the car, and I'm looking, squinting to see if I recognize anybody, because it's pitch black out there. And I, I, I'm looking for uh, Clay, and I'm looking for Richie, for Philip, uh, for Wright, Culpepper. I don't see anybody. And then I finally see somebody who looks like Wright, and I said, I think that's it. So I hop out of the car, and I jog over there to this group of guys that are there to work out. And it's not Wright. It's not nobody I know. And so I'm, uh, you know, hey, and just kind of trying to find some people that I know. And it's early, and I just want to climb back in bed. And um, all of a sudden, they uh, circle up, and they speak some code language of, as to what they're going about to do. And I don't understand it. I'm an outsider, not an insider. And then they circle up for prayer, and I know how to do that. So we all kind of gather for prayer. We pray, and then uh, amen, and they say some code words, and people head off in different directions, two groups running. And I'm thinking, what am I supposed to do? You know, I don't, I don't know these people. I want to go to bed. I don't want to run right now. So I head in the opposite direction back to my car, and I drive home. And... Um, <laughs> It turns out these F3 groups meet at different places, and I misunderstood. And the friends that I have were at a totally different school in a whole other part of town. And so uh, I've never gone back, but uh, it was great <laughs> to try to get started into something that never came to be. We're in a series called On Your Mark, uh, which is all about preparing for the race of your life. And it's the race that God has marked out for you, and it requires great endurance. It requires deep commitment to be able to run the race that God's marked out for you. And the goal is to become more like Jesus. It's to mature in love for God. It's to grow in love for one another. And last week we looked at the discipline of or the practice of Bible intake for the sake of Christian maturity. Because if we say by the end of the year, I want to mature as a Christian, then I've got to take steps. Well, one of those steps that would help we looked at last week was by reading and hearing and memorizing and studying the Word of God. And so I hope in the last week, those of you that were here, some of you took opportunity to find some time, find a plan, and then find a takeaway every time you sit down with God's Word to apply it to your life.
And if you haven't done that, you can always start this week. And I was talking to a lady who joins us by television who works at Zesto's, was there uh, this weekend, and she says, I love the message. She said, I didn't know where to start when it came to reading the Bible, so somebody gave me the devotional, Our Daily Bread, so I started there. Well, that's a great place to start. So if you haven't found a plan in the Higher Grounds, Books and Beans, we have those available for you, a Bible reading plan. Bible intake is by far the most important of the spiritual practices if we want to mature to become more like Jesus. But today we come to a second practice that will help us to run with endurance the race here in 2020. And it's this practice really requires great honesty before God. It demands complete humility before God as well as with others. And the practice really brings us close to God's throne, which is called the throne of grace. So I'm going to get serious for a moment here as we prepare to study God's word. And I just want to say up front, even as we've had this time of confession In case you're wondering, I am a sinner. And it is not that I have sinned. It is not that I used to sin. I am a sinner. And whenever I really think about the person that I want to be, the life that I want to mature into, it is primarily a life without sin, a life without spiritual regret. That's what I desire. I want to love others more, and I want to love myself less. I want to ignore my own pride and to continually pour myself out for the joy of others. I want to be content with what I have. I want to be sacrificial with what I give. I don't want to compare myself to others or get caught up on uh, materialism. I want to appreciate God's goodness and recognize the blessings that he's given me in life. I want to be slow to anger. I want to be disciplined with my eyes. I want to keep a tight rain on my tongue so I don't say things that I'm disappointed by. I want to love God with my mind, with my heart, with my soul. But if you could look below the surface of this facade that I wear every day, you would see very quickly that I sin a whole lot. There's a lot of sin there. I love people so much less than I love myself. I invest a whole lot of effort in fortifying my pride because I want to make myself look good. I act in a way to serve my own benefit and not benefit others. I look upon others with judgment, with envy, with lust. Those are the things that are right below the surface. I'm materialistic. I ignore God. I don't notice the blessings of life. I complain. I am a sinner who desperately needs God's grace. So if you walk in here this morning and you feel like an absolute failure when it comes to the Christian life, If you feel like you have slipped up and then you're too far to be forgiven, let me tell you, you are in great company because me too, me too. This morning we're going to look intently into God's word and discover the practice of the confession of sin, which helps us to better run with endurance the race that God has marked out for us. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week in Hebrews chapter 4. That's going to be the passage where we're going to be in. And this particular passage of Scripture is really one of the most important texts within Hebrews if you're studying the book. And so I want you to look with me at verse 14 in Hebrews 4, and I'm going to read through verse 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. 
but one who has been tempted in all ways and in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The writer of Hebrews underscores that Christians have Jesus as high priest. So they should be firm in their faith and they should have confidence as they approach or they draw near to the Lord's throne of grace. And so this morning, what I want to propose to you is that as believers, we should draw near to God with unabashed openness since God alone is the true source of mercy and grace. So we're going to study the text by looking at the two propositions that are made there, hold firmly to the faith. And draw near to God. And we'll look at the first exhortation, which is in verse 14. And the writer of Hebrews opens verse 14 with the word, therefore. We've seen that a lot as we've been studying through Hebrews. Ray Stedman, who was a preacher and an incredible theologian, he contends that this verse is pointing back to verse 13 that we read last week. In verse 13, it says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So this verse reminds us that the whole human race is viewed as totally vulnerable before the all-seeing eyes of God Almighty. You remember Adam and Eve, they entered the world sinless. They were pure, they were unadulterated. And then they gave into temptation, sin enters the world, and they suddenly become aware of their nakedness. They uh, somehow all of a sudden recognize their shame. And so they begin to try to hide themselves from God. Well, Christians are naked and laid bare before God, but there's no need to hide from him. That's what the therefore is there for in verse 14. The believer does not need to hide from God because the believer has an advocate in Jesus. We read, therefore, since we have a great high priest. And clearly the writer of Hebrews is referring to Jesus. And he calls him a great high priest. This takes us back to the Old Testament where they would worship even in the wilderness as they traveled at the tabernacle, and there was the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, and inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And this was a box that contained all of the important reminders to the people of the commitment they had made to God. It also served as a reminder to God of his covenant that he had made with the people. Well, God commanded that on top of this, um, um, uh, this Ark was to be laid gold. We're going to get to that in just a minute. But what we know when we see the high priest, the person who goes into the Holy of Holies, who serves as the advocate between man and God, was the high priest. Aaron is the one who's given instructions in Exodus and Leviticus how to carry out his function as the high priest. He was to wear certain clothes. He was to do certain things in order to lead in this ritualistic worship that the Hebrew people uh, participated in. But the writer of Hebrews reminds us we do not have a high priest. We have a great high priest. Jesus is our great high priest. He's superior to Aaron, superior to Moses. He's superior to all of the Levitical high priests who inherited that title from their forefathers. 
<clears throat> Jesus is a great high priest because he is highly exalted and he's the son of God. And the scripture says he has passed through the heavens. And of course that imagery reminds us of the ascension. When Jesus walked on the earth, he's arrested, crucified, and buried. On the third day, he's resurrected. Forty days later, he goes up to a mount with his followers, and he ascends into the sky, and then he does what? Passes through the heavens. He completes the work of redemption. Jesus, our great high priest, carries the title of Son of God. It's a triumphant title. It reminds us that though Jesus is flesh, he's divine. Well, this characterization serves as what is the basis for the exhortation from verse 14, which is, let us hold fast our confession. Well, this word is not in reference to the confession of sin that we're going to be focused on this morning in the passage. This really is a word which means the faith we profess. So perhaps a better interpretation or translation of the verse might read, let us hold fast to the faith we profess. Well, what faith do we profess? Our good confession is this, Jesus is Lord. Jesus, who is God, came to earth, was in flesh. He grew up, lived a perfect life. He was arrested. He was sentenced to death. He was crucified by being nailed to a tree. He shed his blood. He died on the cross. Then he was buried And three days later, he triumphed over the grave. He's ascended into heaven where he reigns on high with God. And he is alive today. So our good confession is, I'm not Lord, you're not Lord. Jesus is Lord. So he's saying, remain firm and steadfast in that good profession of faith. In fact, the text implies continually do that. Because... If your life is like mine, there are plenty of things on different occasions that cause me to waver a little bit, that cause me to, you know, allow in a little bit of doubt. But we learn here that uh, we are to continually cling to the faith we profess. So what I want to say to you this morning is since Jesus, our high priest, is great, since he has completed the work of redemption, since he is available to us as an advocate There is no reason for you to give up on faith. If you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, then I would say that there have been moments where you have been experienced pressure to throw the towel in. You have been tempted to choose a path other than the one that God is leading you in because you want instant gratification, and the easiest way to get it is through sin. And so you've been pulled in that direction to reject what you profess, which is faith. But we have Jesus, our great high priest. And so in those moments of pressure, that's where our attention should go to. But Jesus, and I should say, hold on to Jesus. Because we know Jesus is holding on to us. So there's two exhortations contained within the critical passages of Scripture here in Hebrews 4. First, we're to hold firmly to faith. And then secondly... We are invited to confidently approach God's throne. And so we're going to look at this second concept in verses 15 and 16. In verse 15, the writer, excuse me, the writer builds on the basis for running with endurance the race before us. 
But he does so from a negative view. He says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. In other words, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. And you think, but Jesus is God. How does God sympathize with humanity and our flaws and our frailty? Well, the easy answer is the incarnation. Because in the incarnation, we have Jesus who is God, who puts on flesh, enters into the world. And although he is deity, although he is perfect, he is limiting himself in flesh. And in that flesh, he experiences weakness that every man and every woman has felt. Secondly, Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses because he made us. And he understands human nature. As creator, God knows exactly who we are and precisely how we are wired physically, mentally, emotionally. And so the psalmist, he says it this way in Psalm 103, verse 14. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. God knows us. My kids started back to basketball yesterday, and Amelia is playing on her first basketball team, and so she had her first game yesterday, and early in the morning when she woke up and she's getting ready, she said, but Dad, I don't want to go. She said, is it normal you only get two practices before you have to go play a game? That's how she felt about it. Well, it's true. They weren't necessarily fully practiced when we got out there. They don't understand all of the fundamentals that they eventually will get, but nobody expected them to be NBA basketball players. They recognize these are kids. They're beginners. They're learners. Well, Jesus knows you are but dust. Not only that, Jesus' sympathy goes further because as the writer says, Jesus has been tempted in all things as we are. In fact, God, God imparts to us through the gospel writers of the temptation that Jesus faced. You'll remember at the beginning of his ministry, he's in the wilderness. The devil himself is there, tempts him in three specific ways. And Jesus resists, quoting scripture. But he not only experienced those three temptations, because the verse says he's tempted in all things. All things. Now, I'm sure that some of you would say, the temptations I face are not anything that Jesus dealt with. Because perhaps there are things that just weren't around, you know? With regards to the internet, with regards to speeding on I-26, whatever it might be, Jesus wasn't tempted in that way, right? But he still experienced the same root temptations. The expressions of sin have changed, but the nature of sin remains unchanged. So Jesus experienced temptation, yet he remains without sin. He never gave in to the temptation. Do you know what that means? Jesus, our high priest, felt the full weight of temptation. You know those moments when you feel like, I can't resist. Jesus felt it. You know, he felt it more than you did. Because most of us will throw in the towel and give in to temptation at even the slightest tempting. But Jesus held out as it increased, and he continued to say, No to temptation. Now, the whole idea of Jesus without sin is a complicated topic. Because Jesus is God, therefore, he is incapable of sin. But we do know the temptation was real. The easiest way to see it is by looking at the Garden of Gethsemane. There, before Jesus is arrested and put on trial, 
He is in the garden, sweating blood, pouring out his heart to the Father, saying, please let this pass from me. I do not want to go through with this. He was tempted to choose a different path than the one the Father had for him. So in light of this great high temptation, this great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses and who has experienced the temptations with faith, the scriptures say, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Why do we want to go before the throne? Because as Steve always said, already said, at the throne of grace, we find forgiveness. The scriptures say if we confess He is faithful and just to forgive. So the writer means let us constantly approach with confidence. Let us draw near with reverence but freedom. Let us approach in prayer not with fear. But what is brought to mind is the throne of grace, is the mercy seat that we described. That's there inside of the uh, tabernacle in the Holy of Holies, mounted just as God commanded it on top of the Ark of the Covenant. It's a gold slab, had a specific measurement. And attached to it were these cherubim that had been fashioned out of gold with wings spreading out over the ark. And it becomes this important seat, this important mercy seat um, where the uh, grace is sought and mercy is uh, extended. On Yom Kippur, that's the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. He would light the incense so that the smoke would envelop the mercy seat. And then he would take the blood of a sacrifice bull, sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And it became symbolic there of the place where the high priest would seek mercy from God for the sins of the people. So the high priest alone was able to only annually go before the mercy seat. But in this passage of Scripture, every believer is encouraged to continually Go before God's throne of grace through prayer. And it's here, at the throne of grace, that the believer receives mercy. So the believer violates God's command. We fall short of his expectation. We sin. But by drawing near to the throne of grace in confession through prayer, the believer receives remission for judgment, forgiveness. Not only that, the believer also finds grace to help, it says. Timely aid from God. Well, Jesus' compassionate expression towards us, his disposition towards us, and his deliberate approach toward us makes our approach toward his throne even possible. You know, at the throne of grace we find help. But there's another aspect of drawing near to the throne of grace that we're focused on this morning, which is drawing near to God in prayer for the sake of confession. And this word confession means to say the same thing. It is to agree with God. So what does he say about the sin in my life? I will agree with you. That's what confession is. Kenneth Wiest says, the act of confession involves the Christian coming to terms with God in regard to their sin and agreeing with God as to what he says about that sin. So confession of sin is important because when we practice true confession, one thing is we're liberated from guilt. And if you've ever experienced guilt, you learn that it can really limit you in in the way that you serve God. In fact, it can often just take you off of the front lines. 
because you carry around this guilt. But in confession, guilt's released, and we have freedom to serve God. Secondly, when we practice true confession, we are less likely to fall victim to the same temptation next time because we pointed it out. We've said, that's sin. I've committed it. I'm sorry for that. I don't want to do it again. And so we are, you know, reinforcing our ability to resist the temptation. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 reminds us that Christians have Jesus as high priest. So we should be firm in our faith and have confidence in going before his throne. So our goal as believers is to mature in love for God, to grow in love for one another, to become more like Jesus as we run the race that God has placed before us. And in order to find ourselves a little bit further down the road by the time we get to the end of the year, we need these practices. We said last time it's by reading God's word, spending time with God's word. Now we come secondly to this idea of confession of sin for the purpose of becoming more like Jesus. Now most of us practice confession either daily or maybe it's just on occasion. And our general confession is to say something, God, I'm sorry for all my sins. And it's a real generic kind of label. But I want to challenge you to take that a little bit further. I'm going to offer to you six steps to practice confession of sin for the purpose of spiritual maturity. And the first step is preparation. It's preparation. So what I mean is that we prepare to come before God in prayer for the sake of confession, and we place ourselves in the care of the Holy Spirit. Because if you're like me, when all of a sudden, when I start analyzing my faults, I just start condemning myself. And I think, yeah, you're right, Wes, you are worthless. And so I place myself into the care of the Holy Spirit. And I go before him, and I ask him to help me with this confession. The psalmist says it this way in Psalm 139, 23 through 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. So, we, say, we start our prayer by preparing ourselves, by saying, God, I'm coming before you in confession, I'm placing myself in your, in your care. Would you point out where the wickedness is? And then the second step is to practice self-examination. This is exactly what it sounds like. It's to review your day through the lens of holiness. It's to look back on your life from the past day, the past week, whatever it might be, and to analyze, God, where have I fallen short? Where have I failed to live up to what you asked me to do? Some people do this by trying to just go through moment by moment. Another way is to maybe use categories of sin, like pride and anger and lust and laziness. And I say, okay, God, was I prideful? And I look back on my life and I say, or, or the day, and I say, yeah, right here, when I said that, that, that was sin, and I'm sorry for that. Or maybe I was envious, and it was right here. I didn't say anything, but I thought it, God, and I'm sorry for that. I know that I should be content, and I am content with what you've given me. So rather than just say, God, forgive me for my prideful thoughts, I reflect on the specific moment where I fell to temptation. In the uh, community of recovery, the fourth of the 12 steps is a fearless and a ruthless moral inventory. I actually go through my life and find out where the faults and the failures are. So that's self-examination. The third step is perception. So we confess by attempting to take a different view of our life. You know, whenever I'm looking at my own life, I can, I, I, I'm just prone towards denial. Well, that's not that big a deal. 
So I try to look at it through the lens of those I've sinned against, particularly God. How does he look at this? And so I change my perception. Fourth step is investigation. And what I do is I ask the questions, why and what happened? Because the goal is not confession. Confession is a means to an end. I want to spiritually mature. So I better look at this and say, why did I fall to the temptation? What's going on in my heart? How does this connect with my life? What is it that motivated me to say yes to sin and no to God? And then I say, what happened? What, how, how did it affect my relationships? How did it affect my future or my thinking? And so I really am just careful about that. The fifth step is contrition. A contrite heart, godly sorrow. So I don't just confess in order to exchange information, because that's really not how it works. It's not that I'm saying, God, I'm sorry for this sin, and then he forgives me of that one. At the cross, all of my sins are forgiven. They've all been taken away. They've been nailed to the tree, right? And so in confession, I'm agreeing with God, and I'm saying I want to mature in the faith. And so it's right here, I experience godly sorrow, contrition. I try to experience the pain of those who I sinned against, particularly God. And I just dwell there for a moment. How hurtful is this to you, God? Look at what you endured for me. And look at how I so quickly gave up on you. Now, it doesn't lead to self-condemnation. Because it always is leading us towards grace. Because that's what the throne offers. The sixth step is intention. We not only name where we've sinned, we also name what we want to do differently. And I say, God, I want to repent. Next time, I want to do this. Now, I know that our, our, our will is not always strong in those moments. But I want to be clear with God and clear with myself what I expect from me and how I want to mature in the faith. All of this will bring you to the pinnacle of the mountain of confession, which is grace. He covers it all. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Let me conclude by saying once more that we have Jesus as our high priest. So let us hold fast to the confession of faith that we have. And let us draw near with confidence to God's throne and seek forgiveness, seek cleansing, so that we might be able to run with endurance the race before us. Our Father in God, we thank you so much that when we come before you in confession, you don't look upon us with judgment or condemnation, but you extend towards us grace. God, and even now, I'm just sensing how you have covered my sins with the blood. And I know you've done the same for those here. Father, help us to faithfully now live as you would call us to. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we come to the conclusion of our service. I have an invitation for some of you to respond. It may be to join the church. It may be to say that today you want to make that good confession that Jesus is Lord. It might be that you just need the altar just for a moment of confession. If God's working in your heart during this time of invitation, I encourage you to respond. You stand as our uh, choir sings, I'll be down front.
Thank you so much. Uh, real quick, I do want to make an introduction because uh, I saw them sitting out here. Carla has uh, been uh, he- living here as an exchange student from Brazil, and her parents who worship with us on Facebook, although they don't speak English, they said they wanted to come so they could worship at First Baptist Church because they could experience the Spirit as they joined us. So would you, Carla, would you have you stand and have your parents stand up? Can you do that? And so they're here from Brazil. Y'all welcome them. I'm so glad they're here. Thank you so much. And y'all can sit down. So uh, Carla is your exchange student, and she'll be headed back to Brazil. But we're so glad that you've been here uh, while you've been in uh, the Midlands. Uh, just let me make a couple announcements. If you're looking for an opportunity to serve, and let me say, if you're following Jesus, you ought to be. There is uh, one wonderful place for you to serve that's near and dear to my heart, which is our Good News Club, where we go to Meadowfield Park Elementary, and there's some other schools, too, where there's opportunities for you to serve in the Good News Club um, once a week. It lasts for six or eight weeks. I don't know, but Carol Elliott's back here, and she could help you and find that out. If you want to express interest, just see them at the Connection Desk or follow the information in the bulletin. Um, also, we have coming up for those that are engaged or newlywed couples is our Simbus class, Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. Um, it's a great study. We come together with other couples um, and just kind of start off the marriage on the right foot. And so you can sign up for that. It's a free uh, course, but you can also find information at the Connection Desk. On the same note, for young couples, they have a fellowship coming up uh, where you might want to connect and get engaged uh, here at the church called uh, tacos and trivia. So you can find uh, information about that at the connection desk. Um, we also have tomorrow our deacons meeting, uh, which we do on a monthly basis. And as a part of the deacons meeting, uh, we have a team of deacons who their whole commitment is uh, prayer. And so they gather at 530 over in 1420, uh, the building right over here. And uh, they'll be there to pray, but they also will pray for your needs. If you have a specific need and you want them to uh, circle around you and pray for you, you can show up there. If you can't be there, then uh, you can fill out a card. And who, who's going to stand up uh, so that I can say you can give those cards who is it? I don't even know. Well, we're going to say this. You hand it right here to Bert Dowling. Bert, you stand up. You got a prayer need, you get it to him. He'll get it to the right person uh, so they can pray for that need. Today we have our first family lunch in uh, Ellis Hall. And so if you haven't bought a ticket, there's a few left, I'm sure. But just right back here in our fellowship hall, um, a, a buffet lunch. College students, there's free lunch for you and Bible study over in 1420. But uh, that's all. That's a lot of announcements, but hopefully you connect on those things. Now I'm going to invite you to stand and uh, pray our benediction. And then Pastor Steve will lead us out. Father, we thank you. We just thank you, God. How good it is to know you. And how good it is to know the, the more we draw near to you, the more grace you extend our way. It's in Jesus' name we pray.